0: Welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Doomberg. Doomberg is the top financial substack in the world, and today we're talking about energy markets. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and
1: macro factors affecting the world today.
0: Hi, Doomberg. Welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here.
0: I thought we could just start with a little introduction, sort of what you're all about and what you're looking at today.
1: Yeah. Hey, so uh, I'm Doomburg, the head writer of the Doomberg Substack. And we are a small team of industry executives and scientists from heavy industry, commodity sector, energy sector. And we write a Substack that publishes six to eight pieces a month, and we are having a blast doing it. And and we write about energy and the economy at large. And sometimes you write about stocks and we mix in a bit of crypto. So it's been a fascinating experiment. And so, yeah, that's what we do.
0: That's awesome. It's nice, I think, to have sort of a journalist approach to this stuff sometimes, because it's a pretty interesting place out there. One thing I noticed when we were talking back and forth, communicating your email is a little tag at the end that says energy is life. Uh, I thought that that was a pretty nice way to close out an email. And I wonder if we could just start with a little discussion on the macro environment for energy. Where do you see energy right now? And where do you see it going?
1: So obviously, energy is well off the highs from the summer, at the peak of the energy crisis. And our phrase, you know, energy is life is born from the fact that without energy, of course, there can be no society, there can be no standard of living. human endeavor, in fact, is just a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. And so literally, your standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to waste. And for a period of time, more than a decade, I would say, we were in a period of excess primary energy. So Energy prices were low and there was abundance of energy, driven primarily by the revolution in technology and the shale patch in the US. COVID changed a lot of that, the lockdowns associated with COVID, as well as ESG policies and energy companies' renewed focus on cash flow instead of growth. Met for a period of time earlier this year, we were in a situation where not only were we short primary energy, but the market feared that the situation could get much worse. And of course, today's price is a combination of supply, demand, and expectations. It looks like so far, at least, the edge of the potential risk factors around the energy crisis have been abated or removed because of unseasonally warm weather in Europe. And that has deflated the price of energy. And also, of course, the Chinese lockdowns, the zero COVID policy in China, the release of oil from the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and a slowing economy, especially in Europe, have contributed to a rebalancing of supply and demand and a resetting of price in a downward direction. There's signs that China is opening. And as we're recording this, President Xi just landed in Saudi Arabia and is getting the red carpet treatment from MBS. So we shall see. It's going to be an interesting few months for sure. But at the macro level, there's a lot of pessimism in the energy trading market around the future, which could be a good contraindicator of perhaps a turn in the prices. But right now, some of the worst case scenario risk from the concerns that were totally justifiable this summer seem to have been abated.
0: Yeah. And I think when we talk about energy, it gets a little bit complicated because there's a difference between electricity price and commodity price. I know there was an article that came out from Bloomberg in this August, and they were saying that price in Europe was equivalent to $1,000 a barrel for crude. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that, because that's, I think, sort of a sticking point for lots of people.
1: Yeah. So one of the confusing things about analyzing energy, which is something we write about fair bit, is they are traded in different units of trade. So a barrel of oil or a million BTUs of natural gas or a ton of coal. And it can be difficult to compare prices for different commodities because they're traded in these different units. One of the things that we like to do is harmonize everything, ideally to dollars per million BTU, because you could basically then compare primary energy sources with the same measurement stick. But people prefer the price of oil in barrels sometimes, and so as a general rule of thumb, if you take the price of natural gas quoted in dollars per million BTU and you multiply it by six, you get an estimate of what the energy equivalent price of natural gas is in barrels of oil equivalent. So actually it's like 5.6, depending on the grade of crude that you're talking about, but just six is a good round number. So for example, today in Europe, natural gas is trading at $45 per million BTU compared to less than $6 in the US, by the way. So like this massive price disparity between the regions persists, but at $45 per million BTU, you're looking at what's that $270 a barrel of oil equivalent. At its apex, natural gas in Europe traded at $100 per million BTU, so roughly $600 a barrel of oil, and so on. And, and you could do the same with coal. There's different dividers. So you take the price of coal and, and you could normalize it in dollars per million BTU and so on. And then, so when they say electricity prices, that's a little bit deceptive because that's sort of a highly refined product downstream from the primary energy sources. So that's the real source of the confusion. And unless you sort of have a feel for numbers, as some people do, it can be difficult to compare these sources in an intelligent way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I know I get stuck sometimes looking at electricity prices and commodity prices, and it's not the same in every country. And it's, you know, it's, it doesn't equal out necessarily. So that's where it gets difficult. And just going on electricity prices, one of the cheapest ways of gaining electricity and powering a country, as we all know, is nuclear. And some people think that we might be going through a nuclear renaissance in the late stages of 2020s. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about nuclear and where you see that going.
1: So we're huge proponents of nuclear power. And our strong belief is that you cannot decarbonize the economy without massively destroying standards of living unless you have a, a complete renaissance in nuclear power. And the reasons for that are numerous. The most important one is it is an incredibly high energy density material, energy dense fuel, and the payback periods on energy are short. Now, Nuclear is expensive financially, mostly because opponents of nuclear power have made it incredibly difficult to get permitting and to they all kinds of litigation and complexities that, that arise when you want to build a nuclear power plant, at least in the United States. But in the rest of the world, and you know, even in Canada, there seems to be a re-engagement with physics and and a desire to have nuclear be a contributing factor to the suite of energy solutions that we have. Now, in addition to energy density, another reason why nuclear power is so beneficial is because it produces base load power. In the industry, the term that you would use to describe how effective nuclear power is called its capacity factor. And a capacity factor is the percent of the time that it's operating at its peak capacity. Or or said another way, it is the ratio of how much energy it actually produced to how much energy it could produce in a given time period. And for nuclear power, if the plants are run correctly, you can get capacity factors in excess of 90%. It produces steady base load power 24 hours a day. Whereas with wind and solar, if the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, it doesn't produce much power at all. And for solar, you know, in the right spots The world that can have a capacity factor as high as 25%. But in places like Germany, and we wrote a piece on this just recently, the capacity factor integrated over the years is something like 11%. And so this is one of the deceptive sleight of hands that the people who are pushing for renewable energy like to play. It's a trick. We have, you know, 10 gigawatts of installed solar capacity. Okay. But in Germany, that means it's, you know, going to produce at a power rate of one gigawatt over time. And so you have to install so much more solar to produce the same amount of electricity. And then on top of that, because the electricity electricity produced by wind and solar is intermittent, you have all of these complexities in the management of the grid. And these costs are usually left out of calculations when you try to compare the cost of wind and solar to the cost of nuclear. So that's our view. There is no path to decarbonizing the economy that doesn't run through nuclear unless you would like a lot less people on the planet. And so those are the choices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. I think we need nuclear if we're going to decarbonize the economy. And actually, I was going to bring up a net zero economy. And I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on net Zero and a net zero economy, if you think it's attainable, and if so, who do you think can get
1: there first? I mean, there's so many different definitions of net zero, but I'll say this the path to radically reducing our carbon intensity, assuming that we keep that as a goal, involves a combination of nuclear power and then smartly electrifying our vehicle fleet, and then massive investments in things like insulation and so on. You know, so that uh, in fact, you know, lighting is a huge source of CO2 emissions and put it this way. Let's just take electric vehicles for an example. Right now, the policies and government support and incentives are all directed towards moving people from internal combustion engines to full battery electric vehicles. There's a worldwide shortage of battery materials, things like nickel and cobalt and lithium and copper wiring and so on. That worldwide shortage of battery materials needs to be the thing that we manage to, that's the constraint and so our view is that instead of pushing full BEVs where you might have a you know an 80 kilowatt hour battery in one car from that same 80 kilowatt hours worth of batteries, you can make four plug-in hybrids, 20 kilowatt hours each that you could probably shave 90% of people's fossil fuel uses across four cars. And the math is very simple and undeniable. With one big battery electric vehicle, you abate one person's fossil fuels, at least you know gasoline use. And with four plug-in hybrids, you abate four times 90 is 3.6, You know, that's 360. So it's almost four times better, fossil fuel abated per pound of battery to go plug-in hybrid. So our policy would be a rejuvenation of nuclear power, And then we would reorient our strategy around electrification towards plug-in hybrids. You're always going to need some form of fossil fuels for driving big diesel trucks, for example. Those would be very difficult to electrify, but also as a starting material for the chemical industry and so on. And so I think the optimization equation has to be total standard of living we wish to provide our citizens divided by CO2 emission. And driving CO2 down and increasing people's standard of living is the trade-off.
0: I think that hybrids are a very logical approach, in my opinion. And I am curious to know, have you looked into you know, full scale cradle to grave emissions for a hybrid in comparison to a internal combustion or full electric vehicle, because I'm not sure, but I feel like a full electric given all the materials it takes to build one of those, the carbon that you write off might not be as great as some people think in comparison to a hybrid.
1: So such calculations are complex and they are necessarily politicized as a consequence or unfortunately mm-hmm. politicized as a consequence and with such calculations the only thing that matters is the assumptions that you make so for example how do you handle end of life does the battery get recycled does it find a second use and how do you credit the carbon emissions from the second use versus yours and so there's certain things that you could just know intuitively like for example when we wrote the piece about solar capacity factors and we tried to show people how to calculate what the energy pay back period on invested is for a solar panel. There's so many different assumptions you have to make that those calculations basically would become reduced to an expression of people's pre-existing biases. And so to answer your specific question, no, we have not. But I can tell you that given the same amount of batteries, it's undeniable that spreading the batteries around to more fossil fuel consumed across more consumers is going to be far superior results. So for example, one of the, the greatest carbon abating inventions of all time was the Toyota Prius. There, I think they might have a two kilowatt hour battery or maybe a four kilowatt hour battery. What's more efficient? One full battery electric vehicle that somebody uses as an extra car with 80 kilowatt hours of batteries or 20 Toyota Priuses averaging 45 to 50 miles per gallon against a fleet that averages 25. And so the full life cycle analysis is, is just too complex to get into. And, and these are just sort of headline headlining type things, you know, but in reality, I think you just use your common sense and, and you can get to the right answer most of the time.
0: Yeah, I agree. And you know, the whole reason that I'm so interested in this is because energy runs the planet, as you say, energy is life. And I'm trying to gain enough information to make some appropriate investments in different areas. And I know I had Jamie Keech on. He's a mining guy. He suggested for commodities, he would say nickel, copper, and uranium for his picks. Whether that's miners or the actual commodity itself, you go in lots of different ways. When it comes to hybrid and electric vehicles, I think that the hybrid sort of point of view that you took there totally makes sense. But I've also heard you say that you have a law of anti-logic, which I think is kind of funny. And I wonder if you could walk through that because sometimes the logical solution to a problem isn't always how it plays out in practice.
1: Yeah, so the law of anti-logic was a fun phrase that we concocted to describe our relatively negative view of the capabilities and intellect of the current suite of leaders in the G7. And the law of anti-logic states that when given a choice, you can count on the current slate of Western leaders to make the worst possible decision. And it was invented in the context of the European energy crisis, where, take Germany for example, the solution to their energy crisis is to put a cap on price, that will therefore diminish enthusiasm for incremental supply, while simultaneously bailing out consumers, which then therefore, all things being equal, increases the demand. And so the proper solution to an energy crisis is to, pr- is to produce more of it and to use less of it. The policies on offer in Europe seem designed to do the opposite of those two things. And so that's the sort of fun origin of that phrase that we used it for a while. It's generally, you know, true, like just watching what's happening in Germany or in Canada, two countries we wrote about in our piece that I published this morning, you can count on them to make the worst possible decision. And in a way, it, your job as an analyst is to model what's going on. That's a pretty good uh, axiom through which to begin your analysis.
0: Yeah, I myself as a Canadian, I was pretty frustrated to see Germany not knock on the door of Canadian government and ask for LNG and only to be turned down and offered hydrogen. And now, as you know, as you published in your article, Germany's gone to Qatar. So of course, you can stand sort of a high moral ground in Canada and say, we don't want to create this high carbon created natural gas. Although I would argue that natural gas offsets coal, in which case you reduce emissions. But if we don't give it to them, then, you know, a place like Qatar will. I wonder if you want to just talk a little bit about your article you release today.
1: Yeah. So at its core, natural gas is an incredibly heterogeneous market from a regional perspective for the simple reason that it's a gas and it's very difficult to transport. So as we alerted to earlier in this conversation, you know the price of natural gas in Europe right now is eight or nine times what the price is in the US, even though it's the same molecule. And so Trudeau's position is, even though gas in Canada is trading at something like $4 per million BTU or one-tenth of the price, and I'm pulling it up as we speak on my Bloomberg terminal, because his view is that there's no business case that would justify incremental investment of LNG export terminals because he thinks that the world isn't going to need fossil fuels pretty soon. And so this, these investments would be obsolete. And also, for some reason, a historic arbitrage spread, it, it doesn't make for a compelling case. So as we're talking right now, natural gas over in Alberta is trading for 350 per million BTU, $3.50, which to use our rule of thumb calculation that we mentioned earlier is roughly the equivalent of $20 a barrel of oil. So you have natural gas selling for $20 a barrel of oil in Canada, and you have natural gas selling for, what did we say, $270 a barrel of oil, and Trudeau doesn't see the business case. So Germany showed up, you know, hat in hand, and were turned away, and we're forced to cut a, a a 15 year deal with Qatar for their, you know, LNG that they're actually investing. And you know, Qatar has a lot of problems with it, as we wrote in the piece, you know, they they have this Kafala system of forced labor and they, they have certain policies against minority groups that we would find repulsive. And yet, despite these objections, Germany was forced to cut a deal with Qatar instead of friendly ally like Canada or heaven forbid developing their own. You know, uh, fracking is banned in, in Germany right now. And so instead Germany is burning coal as its primary source of electricity. It has one of the dirtiest electricity grids in the developed world, despite sort of preaching to everyone else about the need to make this net zero transition. So Germany has invested an enormous amount, billions and billions of dollars into wind and solar. And yet, here we are in 2022. Coal is its primary input, and they're cutting long-term deals with despots in Qatar for their future LNG needs up until 2041. So the hypocrisy and the incompetence are the foundations of the law of anti-logic, And you could see here in this case, this nonsense about hydrogen being a viable energy carrier is complete and total nonsense. All money spent on that will be wasted and lost. It will do nothing, to impact the environment. There will be lots of grift and it'll be played up in the media as some great thing. When every scientist with any training whatsoever can look at that and see how silly it is from a first principles perspective.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. I think that the belief that fossil fuels will become irrelevant in this world anytime soon is misled. And I think you summed that up really well, you and your team with a Substack article that you wrote called Where Stuff Comes From. And basically, if we decided all of a sudden that all of our cars were electric and our power plants ran, were completely nuclear, let's say, we'd still need these commodities, oil and natural gas. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where stuff comes from.
1: Yeah, the article where stuff comes from basically is a description of how we have oriented the the materials aspect of our society and the chemical industry in particular. And basically stuff comes from fossil fuels. And the way that industry is oriented is that we start with high energy materials and we do a controlled burn i.e. perform chemistry, using the energy embedded in the materials themselves as part of the input into the manufacturing process. And so, you know, an integrated chemical plant like uh, uh, the one we described in a piece called for Bun, which describes the BSF plant in Luxushafen, they're really, really fascinating interconnected molecular machines. Basically, these giant reactors are converting high-energy materials like oil and natural gas into slightly lower-energy materials like polyethylene, and then lower down the hill still to things like polyurethanes and so on, and to climb up that ladder, so that we use the ladder as a metaphor, you know, at the on the ground under the ladder is CO2, carbon dioxide, which is the final combustion product of burning natural gas or oil or coal. And once you've got CO2, there's no energy left in it for you to use. It's, it's what's known as a thermodynamic sink. The entire industry is set up to slowly slide down the ladder using gravity in this case as the metaphor to go from one rung to the next. Climbing up the ladder makes very little economic and even less energy sense. And that's why we largely don't do it. In fact, photosynthesis is, of course, climbing up the ladder to go from CO2 to, say, wood or or to plant stuff. That is a very slight step up from the ground beyond that would be coal and then oil and then natural gas on the ladder. And so wherever you can, you start from the top and you slide down. And our our entire society, like everything that we see around us uh, is made possible by this engineering understanding of controlled burns are easier than pouring a lot of energy into climb up the ladder. So that was the point of that piece where stuff comes from. And basically, uh, I think it's roughly 7% of a barrel of oil accounts for much of the chemical industry. Uh, The chemistry grew out of the oil refining sector. because there was a need to make good economic use of the byproducts. So for example, asphalt is the still bottom from refining. And and that's why we have all these roads paved with asphalt, because you got to put that asphalt somewhere. And so, yeah, once people understand where stuff comes from, and unfortunately, few politicians do, then you could be in a position to make intelligent choices about what our trade-offs should be. There are no solutions to the energy debate. There are only trade-offs. Which trade-offs are you willing to make?
0: Yeah, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about a couple of those trade-offs.
1: Yeah, so for example, nuclear, the big boogeyman on nuclear is quote nuclear waste, you know, we're destroying the planet for tens of thousands of years and we have argued uh, forcefully and we think convincingly that the, the nuclear waste argument is nothing more than a canard compared to the benefit of steady baseload power with 90 plus percent capacity factor and power plants that last 60, 70, 80, 100 years, dealing with a relatively small amount of nuclear waste in a safe manner is a incredibly price to pay for the life nourishing instead of living enhancing energy that nuclear power plants produce. For example, with wind, there are trade-offs. You want to blight the skyline with large turbines, then there's substantial impact on migratory birds, for example. Just one of the many controversies in that space. Or solar, how much land do you want to use. And of course, the cost of polysilicon and all of the toxicity that goes into its production. There are no solutions. So there's no question that burning fossil fuels emits CO2 into the atmosphere. And there's some concern about that. so much concern that we've decided to organize our entire society around minimizing it great. The trade-offs are how much standard of living are you willing to reduce? Or what are the other sort of challenges associated with the technology? So one final example is uh, again this push to electrify transport the very same people who are demanding that we replace every car with a full battery electric are the same ones who are opposing the development of any of the new mines that would be needed to supply the metals to make that transition happen and so at some point you know something's got to give there are no solutions there are only trade-offs and unless and until you're honest about the trade-offs and understand the trade-offs it's impossible that you can make intelligent decisions
0: yeah and you know it's interesting for me personally my journey into energy started with carbon credit And I listened to a podcast with Maren Katusa and we study billionaires and it sort of just made sense to me that carbon credits would be the tool that government could use to decarbonize. And I think that kind of based on your rule of anti-logic, it feels like the people in power have made up their mind and decarbonation is the way to go. And perhaps for, you know, DIY investors like myself or anybody listening, carbon credits could provide an opportunity in the future to grab onto those tailwinds. I wonder what your thoughts are on carbon credits and where do you see the voluntary or compliance markets going?
1: Yeah. So you made an important point there at the end, which is what I was going to lead with is You have to be careful if you're talking about the voluntary carbon credits market and then fully regulated carbon credits market. And then where is that market and what are the rules and how likely is it that regulators will change the rules without Mm -hmm. notice? And so the whole theory of carbon credits, of course, is meant to put a market price on carbon emissions in a way that encourages industry to both measure and then hopefully minimize their carbon emissions over time. And the whole theory behind carbon credit capitalistic model, taking market forces to achieve otherwise societal objectives is that those carbon credits would ratchet up in cost over time. There'd be some mechanism embedded in the market structure that would ensure that over time, companies that were unable to squeeze out more carbon offsets or more efficiencies in their production would be penalized compared to their competitors who would do it better. So in theory, I think it's a fine strategic tactic to achieve the underlying objective of minimizing. CO2 emissions. As an investor, you have to be very, very careful to understand the fine details and how they can be changed on a moment's notice. So, yeah, that's my view on carbon credits.
0: Yeah, I think that you have to be careful, especially with ESG, because sometimes, for example, if you're jumping on the environmental train and somebody's throwing in solar panels to get into an ESG fund or to get ESG rated financing, it's possible that those solar panels could be made in a non ESG friendly way, like in China with the Uyghurs, for example. And then in which case that company could be in a lot of pain if they had gone that route. Maybe we could just get a quick take on ESG tailwinds for investors or headwinds, some
1: kind of things they should probably watch out for if this theme continues to rise. Yeah, we've written about the takeover of the production of solar panels by China. We were in the industry when that occurred, and a lot of solar proponents like to think that there's some S-curve of technology development that is accountable for decreasing cost of solar, when in reality, it was driven by China burning dirty, cheap thermal coal and, and leveraging slave labor, as you alluded to, in order to flood the market with artificially cheap solar panels. And that's why 90 to 95% of the critical aspects of the solar supply chain now reside in China. I think we may be past peak ESG. You know, uh, in a milestone I would keep an eye on is the ultimate fate of our friend Larry Fink at uh, BlackRock, the CEO of, of BlackRock, which is this huge you know, financial firm that allocates investor money passively, but has become activists in its desire to see companies improve their ESG standards and reporting. And there's been a lot of pushback. And in many ways, Larry Fink and BlackRock have become a metaphor for the struggle. And I'd say his leadership is starting to be questioned a bit. And more conservative states in the US, for example, have begun to pull some of their funding from BlackRock funds like Texas was a major oil producing state. So I would keep a close eye on BlackRock. He just got an activist investor yesterday, Bluebell, which appears to be arguing that he's not doing enough in the ESG space when he's already beginning to backtrack and probably wishes he hadn't done so much. He writes these annual letters to CEOs, which are widely read given how much money he's allocating. And a couple of years ago, he wrote a, a letter that focused exclusively on ESG and, and climate change and received some pushback on that. So that's what I would be watching. I think the problem with ESG, of course, is there's almost never any talk about the S or the G. Community components have it, social and governance, and governance in particular. So if if you are a solar company that engages in, but the rest of your governance structure is terrible, it doesn't seem to matter. Like that you just get a pass because you have solar in your company's title. But I do think we may have seen peak ESG, nothing like a market correction to focus the attention of investors on economic returns instead of non-economic returns.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think once money starts to get tight and the rates start going up, then people really start to crunch the numbers and start to focus on different aspects of their investments perhaps. And that brings me to something I actually had written down for you. We've got an inverted yield curve. You know, We're seeing lots of flags going up as far as the economy, yet we're still raising rates. I wonder what's your thoughts on demand destruction? Are we in a recession? Are we heading towards a recession? And how deep do you think that might be?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a complicated one. And I would say at the highest level, Jerome Powell has decided to break the back of inflation in the United States period. That's his objective. We take him at his word. He's hiking rates until inflation comes back to targeted levels, and there will be consequences globally, and he doesn't care. One of the consequences globally is it puts an enormous amount of pressure on emerging market economies that have dollar-denominated debt. It puts pressure on people who are net energy importers because they have to settle their energy trades in US dollars and so on. But uh, whether or not there's a recession elsewhere, unless and until the amount of pain in the US escalates substantially, I don't think Jerome Powell is going to back off. And so yeah, I think for example, in Europe, it's hard to tell with government numbers these days, because everything has become so political, but I, I would say looking at the demand for natural gas from European industry, and so on, it's hard to see how Europe could avoid a recession at this point. But yep, Jerome Powell has raised rates at a historic clip and seems intent on pushing the US inflation down to historically comfortable levels from their elevated levels that we see today.
0: Yeah, it's a really tough question to answer. I think if anybody could, they'd be pretty proud of themselves. And you know, it's interesting, When you say the Fed raises rates and essentially exports inflation, well, it's obviously, you know, the dollar rises and everything else gets expensive for other people. And it's almost like in Europe with the natural gas crisis that we had this summer, they got their gas a rich nation, but they pulled it from other places. And you saw protests going on in Sri Lanka and some of these other countries that couldn't afford to pay off these ships that were redirected to Europe. I wonder with the energy crisis in Europe, how do you think that's going to carry on over the next five years, decade? And what kind of an impact do you think that the European energy crisis is going to have on the globe?
1: Yeah. So the European energy crisis looks set to be resolved after next winter. So I don't think it's a five to six year problem. It's a one more winter after this one problem. And by then, we're seeing this wave of LNG import and export terminal construction coming online. And you'll notice that Qatar, for example, doesn't kick in until 2026. But countries like Australia, Qatar, and the US are building new LNG export terminals and countries like Germany and the rest of Europe are building LNG import terminals. And once all of this new construction comes online, which is occurring at a very rapid pace compared to historical standards, we will have a much more global market for natural gas and things should harmonize down. Generally speaking, arbitrage drives prices down. And so if you look at the futures curve for European natural gas, which is the price of natural gas you know, plotted out, it really just settles back down to a historical baseline in a couple of years. And as I'm talking to you, I'm going to pull it up, speak directly to it, which is the power of Bloomberg. So yeah, it, basically the winter of 2023, 24 and then the into 2025. So the curve is saying that by January of 2026, when all this new supply is coming online, things will be back to normal. In fact, natural gas out past 2026 is trading for $12, per million BTU in Europe compared to $45 today. So the market's pretty good at fishing these things out. And so the real challenge is, you know, with the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline and whether or not natural gas continues to flow from Russia to Europe, depending on how the weather goes, they should get through this winter and with only significant economic damage, but refilling and getting ready to do it all over again, is going to be pretty interesting. So next winter is going to be a very interesting one to watch as well. Now, because of the interconnected nature of energy markets, like you alluded to, there are some poorer countries that are going to be left out and we're seeing them struggle, but also. You know, as we were talking about earlier, the price of coal, Newcastle coal out of Australia, is over $400 a ton. Coal is actually more expensive than oil today, still, and that's a situation that is rare, I think, unprecedented, and it has persisted for a very long time. So these markets are interconnected. You know, if you can't get natural gas because Germany or Europe is buying up all the LNG carriers, then you have to substitute, and the next best substitute is coal, and the demand for coal has skyrocketed, and uh, an industry once left for dead the dirtiest, most carbon intense primary fuel we could use is the most valuable right now in the market, which is just crazy.
0: Yeah, that is pretty nuts, if I'm honest. And, you know, some people who understand energy may not be so surprised. I know I myself am surprised because I don't have that deep of a knowledge to think that coal could have a resurgence that way. But it is a really interesting thing that's happening. And one thing I did want to ask you about as well with Europe and the energy crisis is the new released oil price cap that they put on Russian crude. It's a EUG Seven in Australia have come to an agreement for $60. I thought I could ask you how the governments believe that this cap is going to work and how you think it's actually going to work.
1: So I must say that this fixation with putting a price cap on somebody else's oil is a bizarre one. It's not going to work. In our view, we've been pretty consistent on that. So the way in which they suppose it's going to work is because the G7 believes it has a monopoly on insurance and the insurance of oil tankers, that somehow if, if they block oil tankers from carrying Russian crude, if the crude is sold for anything more than $60 a barrel, that somehow this will stop the flow of oil. It won't. Russian oil will find its way to the market. And Russia has said, and- I think we should take them at their word, that they will not sell a barrel of oil to any country that agrees to participate in this price cap mechanism. And I think the price cap is only going to drive the price of oil up, and that's only going to result in more revenue for Putin than he otherwise would have had. And so I think it's a silly concept. We are led to, again, the law of anti-logic, like the, the, the best strategy to destroy Putin's revenue, which is something we've been saying from the very beginning, is to produce an enormous amount of supply and drive the price down. The price elasticity demand for fossil fuels, as we're seeing by these wild price swings up and down, the price of elasticity of demand, that these commodities are very inelastic. And so if we would temporarily have a surge in the production of oil and, and natural gas, and if Germany and the UK and the rest of Europe got serious about producing its own energy and reversed its stupid policy on nuclear power plants being shut down, the interconnected nature of energy markets would mean that we would enter into a bear market. And that would destroy Putin's revenue stream a lot faster than trying to sanction it. But alas, the law of anti-logic prevails. And this is just another example.
0: You know, it's really interesting to see this play out. Do you think that other countries are taking notice of this war in Ukraine, like China, for example? And, you know, I know there's always the threat of a Taiwan invasion. And then the US is, you know, coming out with bills to enhance their ability to build and create semiconductors. Where do you think everybody is on that?
1: Well, we wrote a piece called On the Cusp of an Economic Singularity in the days after the first sanctions were announced. And a lot of that has played out, I think, with President Xi in, in Saudi Arabia today. If you compare the treatment that he's getting versus what they provided Biden when he went on his visit, it's pretty remarkable. And I Mm -hmm. think we're seeing a bifurcation of the world from the sort of G7 in the West and then the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa. And then Saudi Arabia seems to be throwing in its lot with the BRICS. And there's all kinds of rumors in the gold community about perhaps the BRICS will develop their own currency backed by commodities and settled in gold, which many of the gold bugs hope leads to a revaluation of gold much higher. We suspect that the U.S. won't allow this to happen without significant interference. And so we shall see. But that is the big question in the next three to five years, I think, is, you If you look at China, watching what the Western world did with Russian reserves, you can't tell me that that doesn't affect China's appetite to hold Western reserves. (laughs) Like Logic dictates that any country that has ever been in the sights of the G7 as a potential bad actor is probably diversifying what they're going to do with their reserves. And so uh, we shall see.
0: Yeah, it really is a complex picture and everybody's making moves ahead of time to attempt to predict the future, which is, you know, it's almost like investing too. So given your knowledge on energy, nobody can see the future, of course. But I do wonder in your point of view, what kind of industries do you think you might be focusing on? Like if you were going to invest somewhere, not a recommendation, of course, but where do you think you'll see the most opportunity? It could be me personally, I, I like to look at oil and gas because I think that it's almost like coal was you know, 10 years ago. Lots of people are not looking that way because they think we won't need fossil fuels, like you alluded to earlier. But I just wonder what industry might you be looking at if you were looking to make an
1: investment. So as we said in other forums, then um, we, we don't invest in public stock markets very much. Our strategy is we earn money in fiat because we participate in the fiat system. We save money by buying real assets, gold, land, collectibles, uh, pick your favorite, real estate. And then we invest privately where we can affect the outcome. So I just want to give that disclaimer that at the high level, We much prefer to invest in management teams that we know. In private markets. And that's not for everybody. You have to be an accredited investor, for example, to participate in many such deals. But we prefer to do that because we can use our network and our skills and leverage our abilities to help the companies we invest in grow directly. Having said that, we are always interested in industries that have been overlooked, as you mentioned. And also, I think there's going to be two big trends over the next 10 years. One of them is, of course, onshoring. So return of manufacturing back to the US, NAFTA, Mexico, Canada. And second is old industries that have been overlooked are very interesting opportunities because there's selling for pretty decent prices. And so we would consider ourselves to be value investors where we look to get in early on in a private company and then help it compound. And so manufacturing, upgrading, any industry, for example, I'll give you a great one. Uh, Any industry that is back integrated to natural gas in Canada is going to be doing well, especially if they can price their products on the global market. So if you could pay 350 a million BTU for natural gas in Alberta, and then you convert that into a product that you can sell on the global market, and you're competing against people in Europe making the same product, but paying $45 a million BTU for their gas, you're going to be printing money. On that spread. But generally speaking, privately held companies and markets that we can understand, like we need to understand how the company makes money and what its competitive position is and, and how good the management team is, all the sort of blocking and tackling that you used to do as a stock picker, but has been overwhelmed by the passive flows dictating returns in the stock market. We'd like to do those things, but in the private market where we can, affect change ourselves. Yeah,
0: I think that that's a great approach. And if I ever get to the point where I can do it that way, I would love to give that a shot as well. With that being said, I think this has been an amazing podcast. All I ever try to do with this kind of discussion, this sort of macro speak is get a little glimpse or just a little peek into the future of what might be and you know maybe look around a corner, as they say. And I think that your insights here really helped me to sort of build a picture of what I think may happen, and hopefully anybody who's listening. So before we end the show, I want to just give
1: you the opportunity to let anybody know where they can find your content. Yeah, so we are on Twitter at T, the letter T is in Twitter, and then all of our writing is at Doomberg.substack.com. We are 100% subscriber supported. So we no ads and no sponsorships. Not that there's anything wrong with those business models, but we believe when our subscribers are the main source of revenue, we have the maximum editorial flexibility to be as provocative as we would like to be. And so for that reason, we've gone with that business model. And we are behind the paywall now, but if you sign up with your email, you do get pretty extensive previews to all of our pieces. And then you see enough previews, maybe you'll plug your nose and jump in the pool and join the thousands of other subscribers that we have that have made doomberg the top finance substack in the world after launching paid in April. So we're super thrilled. It's, a, it's the work of our life. We're so blessed to have found and created Doomberg and to found what we were meant to be doing. And so yeah, Doomberg.substack.com And it was great. And I look forward to chatting again.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You bet.
1: Joe is not a
0: financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.